Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones, and this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Hey, Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. And we're here with uh, episode number 22. And uh, the sound, you know, Peyton, we actually forgot on last week's podcast, and we had uh, Michael Cheshire, that uh, we forgot to tell everyone why it was so noisy in the background. We were doing that in the middle of a restaurant, which sounded they were like they were doing their cleaning right then. So, <laughs> lots of pans going off left and right. But, uh, but we got a special guest on this one, so the sound might actually be a little bit uh, not as good as our studio quality, but because uh, we're we're doing this over a conference line. But uh, Peyton, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, well, we are really honored to have Frank Viola. He is an author, a best-selling author, a uh, blogger. He has one of the biggest uh, Christian blogs out there. He has a very successful podcast, and he is a church reformer. And uh, you've heard of Frank. I mean, it, it, we were we were talking before that um, I told Frank, I'm sure everybody's heard of you. I mean, he wrote Pagan Christianity, which uh, just that title alone is so uh, eye-catching. That was the very first Frank Viola book I bought. Um, God's Favorite Place on Earth, which uh, was his new bestseller, um, From Eternity to Here, Jesus Manifesto, Revivals Again, uh, Jesus, A Theography, Finding Organic Church, Pagan Christianity, Reimagining Church, and the Untold Story of the New Testament Church. And i got to say that last book, uh, that is a dynamite church. If you want to delve into first century, I reference that heavily in uh, Church Zero. Cha-ching! Shameless plug. So, hey, Frank, <laughs> <laughs> I figured at the tail end here, I might as well plug one of mine. Yeah. Anyway, wow. hey, Frank, it is an honor, man, to have you on here. Thanks for coming on to the Church Planner Podcast. Well, I'm honored and humbled that you would have me on. And so um, I want to thank you for for doing it, man. I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to our chat. 
Right on. And when we failed to mention that uh, Frank is not the uh, baseball pitcher. When you Google Frank Viola, a baseball pitcher comes up, and uh, Frank says, I'm not that dude. But it would be cool, huh, Frank, to be both guys. I wish I was that guy. I tell you, I wish I was that guy. I wish you would have told me that before because I did all my research on that other guy. But whatever. <laughs> just a boy with a dream, gentlemen. Just a kid with a dream. That's who I am. I, I uh, always wanted to be a pro baseball player. And when I was in my early 20s, I turned on the TV and I see Frankie V. He has my name on his shirt. And uh, he's pitching. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, man. It, it was like deja vu all over again, although it wasn't me. You know what I'm saying? So, Dude, he was representing the Frank He was representing. Absolutely. Yeah, we actually, I used to be a school teacher, and we would, um, <clears throat> we had this, this thing among my teacher peers where we would tell the students that that was me. And they would say, look, well, what, well, how come he doesn't look the same? Well, on television, you know, it makes you look different. And then I would have some of the smarter kids quiz me on the stats. And, of course, I had them all memorized. And then if I ever missed a day, oh, yeah, he's out. He's in Minnesota. He's got a pitching gig going on. Uh, all the teachers were in on it. Was, it was hilarious. But, of course, I, I used it as a lesson. I wasn't lying to them. I was using it as a lesson at the end of the school year to tell them, don't believe everything you hear. I dig it, man. Man, how cool would that have been to have Frank Viola be your school teacher? Hey, man, I was signing baseball cards, and I was signing baseballs. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Frank, what um, what did you teach? What subject? I taught uh, history, philosophy, and psychology. Well, man, that perfectly ties into what you ended up writing about. <laughs> that is so cool. You know, it, it's funny because um, you're talking about baseball, and I mean – What's really funny to me is the the whole uh, if you build it, they will come to fill the dreams thing. That's like the opposite of how you approach church. And so we want to kind of talk. You're known for organic church and um, really being a, a radical church reformer. And you're you're kind of you're, you're close to my heart on that. Um, you want to burn it down. You want to see a revolution spark, and you want to see people come back to a closer expression of authentic first century Christianity. And so. Um, if, if you know, if if I'm representing, <laughs> I expect you. Oh, know. that's no man. That's not that's great. That's perfect. <laughs> Said it better than I could. And so you know, the the cool thing is, is you know, just looking at it, it's just so funny because I almost tongue in cheek said yes, and that's your philosophy. If you build it, they will come, and the crowds flock in. But the reality is, that's nothing uh, kind of like where you're coming from, and it's so refreshing what you write about. Tell us a little bit of your history. I mean, I, I think right now that we got the exclusive that Frank was a history, philosophy, and psychology teacher um, for kids. Man, that's just killer. I did not know that about you. But tell us more about your background. What's your own story and your journey to the way that you think today? Where did you come from? Mm. came to the Lord when I was about 16 years old. And when I was converted, I had a, a uh, insatiable hunger to know everything about the Lord and, and the Scripture. And so I was a student of the Bible, um, went off to college, did not go to seminary, did not go to Bible college. The Lord led me out of that. I had opportunities to do it. And um, I was a student on campus in Florida, and we just had experienced myself and some of the other students uh, a spontaneous burst of what I would call now organic church life. Now, at the time, 
if you were to ask me what we were, we were experiencing, I could not give you words for it. But we had fellowship. It was a 24-7 kind of experience, face-to-face community. We didn't have any leaders among us. And we pursued the Lord, and we found Him in all sorts of ways. Uh, and that, that experience never left me. And I think around college campuses all over the United States, people are having that. They don't know mm-hmm. what to call it, but they'll look back one day when they get older, and they'll say, you know, those were the high days. Those were the, mm-hmm. those were the highlights, the high points of my life. Went into institutional Christianity, and for me at least, in those early days, <clears throat> I would really become excited about the church I was a part of, whatever it was. <clears throat> and then I got to a certain point where it seemed to be the same thing all over again. So then I would jump to another church. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. over a period of, I don't know, 10 years or so, I had experienced all different denominations within the evangelical world mostly. And there were things burning in my heart that were raising questions that were never answered. Uh, And I would go to pastors and ask them these questions. But one of them was, how come the first century church that I was reading about in the New Testament was so drastically different from what I was experiencing? Mm. And that that was one big question. There were several other questions, and we don't have time to get into those, but that was one of the big ones. And I never really got a good answer for it. And so... One thing led to another. <clears throat> I was teaching Sunday school at a, one of the largest Assemblies of God uh, churches in Florida, or, or was it Church of God? It was a Church of God Pentecostal in Florida. And there were some things going on there behind the scenes. I got to peek behind the curtain, and it had to do with how the poor were being treated. <laughs> and um, that that experience led me out of institutional Christianity uh, myself and about maybe seven others, uh, we were all in our 20s, didn't know beans from peas, but we wanted the Lord, and we knew that there was something more to church than what we were experiencing. So we began to meet in a very simple way in a home, and that experience, uh, gentlemen, lasted eight years. And it was a, it was an eight-year odyssey of exploration, experimentation, trying to figure out on the ground what the church really was. And we, I, 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 the way I would describe it to you is it was a marriage of glory and gore, all wrapped up together. And two things happened. I learned what the cross of Jesus Christ was. I'm not talking about his sacrificial death. I'm talking about that bloody thing that you carry around, <laughs> where the Lord said, if you follow me, you have to bear the cross. Uh, organic church life is a railroad track to the cross. It exposes your flesh, and you meet the cross uh, up close and personal. The other thing that happened is I met the Lord in ways that I never would have dreamed, and it brought me back to those early days as a college student. Uh, I got to taste what it was like to see Jesus Christ be the head of his own church without a clergy, without a pastor as we know it today, without a Sunday morning ritual uh, that most churches you know, follow pretty much the same way with adjustments here and there. And um, in the late 90s, I began to articulate what it was that I had experienced uh, in some self-published stuff I had done. 
uh, only because people would ask me, you know, where do you go to church? Well, um, I don't really go to church. I meet with a group of believers. Okay, what's the name of it? Well, we don't have a name. Who's the pastor? Well, we don't have a pastor. <laughs> and so I got tired of answering these questions, and so I put it in writing. And several years later, uh, a Christian publisher had picked it up, picked up some of my self-published stuff, and uh, offered me a, a book deal to get it out to a much wider audience. And that's how I started to write about my experience and my study of Scripture and what I'd learned, you know, on the ground. So, wow. That's awesome. So that that was quite a risky uh, undertaking on the part of that publisher. Proud of him. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, because, you know, I, I was not a, a known author. And this was a pretty small publisher. This is in 2005. And it was the book, The Untold Story of the New Testament Church. Well, in 2003, I had self-published a book entitled Pagan Christianity. And that got by the desk of George Barna somehow. And Barna contacted me and um, said, you know, I've been looking for this book for years. He said, I just finished Revolution, which was a book he had released, I think, in 2005, I think. And he said, I've been looking for this book, a book that traces the, the practices and origins of our church traditions, and you've written the book. So he wanted to publish it, and so we talked about doing it as a joint project, and uh, hence the book Pagan Christianity, with a, with a question mark at the end of it, um, came out in 2008, and it's a much better version than the original uh, by far. Um, you know, when you self-publish things, it has all kinds of <laughs> errors in it and and mistakes and so forth. But George helped me write that new edition, and we added tons of new material to it, mostly in the form of question and answer. And, um, you know, that really got a lot of interest, uh, both negative interest and positive interest. Uh, someone once said it was the most reviewed book by people who had never read it. And we got, I mean, we got plastered. We got slammed by many critics, most of whom never even read the book or maybe read a couple yep. chapters. So it was kind of fun doing that um, in terms of, you know, putting it out there and just seeing the, the different reactions. But for the most part, the, the feedback was very positive, and it seemed to have given God's people permission, biblical and historical permission, to follow instincts that were going on inside them that they didn't have language for and that they did not have a biblical or historical basis for. So when they read the book, it gave them that justification, that biblical merit, that historical support. It gave them permission to follow their instincts. Mm, I like that. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about everything you're saying is really you had to kind of uh, the part, it, it's ironic because here you're publishing it. I can see how for you it was more of the message um, and less, uh, you know, a lot of guys write, um, like Paul says, a lot of guys preach Christ out of selfish ambition. I'm sure there's a lot of guys they write, and it's all about being liked. And uh, I can remember when I wrote my book, it was kind of like, do you want to be liked or do you want to be used? And it sounds to me like from the get-go, you're writing. You just knew this is not going to be widely accepted. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, this needs to be said. Well, I, I told uh, George when we we first started. You know, it was someone made a comment. Uh, writing a book with George Barner's name on it will make you famous. And my response was, 
writing a book with Frank Viola will get you crucified. And I told I told George that, you know, are you really sure you want to do this? Because, you know, you're going to lose a lot of support and there's going to be people attacking you. And his response was, well, I wrote Revolution and they didn't like that. I said, man, this is a to- totally different ball game. I mean, you're exposing things that's the bread and the butter yeah. Of, of ministers today, and you're challenging it. And I said, it, it, it's going to take it to a new level. And he said to me, uh, I don't care what the you know reactions are. I don't care what negative comments we get, what attacks we get. He says, I believe we need to write this book. And, and I tip my hat to him. I applaud him for that. Yeah. And he stood by it. You know, um, after the dust settled, he still stands by it and sells it. And affirms it and uh, you know he he lost a lot he lost a lot he lost more than i did because you know i was i'm a nobody today and i was a nobody then but you know george barna's got the barna group and you know he's 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 uh, allegedly the most quoted christian on the planet so you know he had a lot at stake so i I really uh, admire him for the stand he took in in writing that book with me well, he has holy gojones, and that is a <laughs> rare quality in men of God today. So that is very cool, man. Because you know, you read the scripture, man, and this is these guys. You know, they had they had a pair. You know what I'm saying? And I think to be a gospel minister, you got to have a pair. <laughs> I hear you, man. I hear you. And Frank, that's going, the first time that's, that's been said on the podcast. I was going to say, that's the first podcast I've ever been in where the dude talked about testicles. I'm sure. Of it. I, I just I just heard about two million radio switches go off and computers shut down. So uh, you may want to edit that out, boys. The uh, as long as we can take Philippians out, where Paul says, "I wish they go the whole whole way to emasculate themselves," then we got a deal, pal. As long as we can edit that out of Philippians. <laughs> well, actually, you only have two listeners anyway, so I don't think it really matters. Oh, so leave it in, leave it in, forget about it, leave it in. That's, that's me and Pete, right? But if you're talking Joey Roper over in Germany, I'm pretty frank. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, okay, so what what does church look like for you? Um, and I'm not going to even say on a Sunday, because I know where that's going <laughs> to What does church look like for Frank Viola? Well, you know, it, it really depends on where you... Um, where you visit, there, there's probably around a dozen groups right now that I'm working with and relating to. I also have coworkers, um, very much believe in team church planting and mm-hmm. working with churches as a team. That's huge for me, and uh, oh, yeah. it, it's somewhat rare today. You know, pre- pretty much uh, guys who are doing any kind of ministry are, are usually solo acts, and I'm not talking about you know the pastor has his staff. You know, I'm talking about peers. They're your peers. It's not people who are under you. You know, you're all equal in terms of um, your your authority and whatever the Lord has given you. Um, but you know, depending on the group you would meet, what you would see is, at least in the United States, you would see um, a, an organic expression of the Church of Jesus Christ in American soil. So you would you would find a group of believers that would um, not just come together once a week, but they would come together often. Um, a lot of the churches will have uh, a corporate meeting once a week. 
um, where everyone comes together and they share uh, out of the riches of Jesus Christ that they have experienced that week. So one of the things that we do in many of the churches is people will get together and pursue the Lord during the week in pairs, sometimes in small groups of three or four. And then they will come together in a gathering, and according to 1 Corinthians 14, every one of you has a revelation, has a psalm, has a teaching, has a word of knowledge, etc. And so out of the abundance of their experience of the Lord during that week, they will share Him together. And sometimes those meetings will go two, three, four hours. Uh, And there's no clergy, there's nobody bringing a sermon, and everyone's sitting passive, everyone's active, even in the singing. Uh, these churches write their own songs, and they'll come up with some of the most beautiful songs you've ever, I've ever heard of, um, and they'll sing together, and you know, one person will lead a song, and another one will come up with another song, and of course they learn them, you know, it's not just all spontaneous. Um, and then during the week, you know, the brothers may get together and have a meeting where they plan some things for the church. The sisters may get together and have a meeting where they share their hearts and talk about their children and talk about their husbands and talk about their frustrations. Um, there'll be seasons of mission where, uh, you know, one church recently, they had a whole season, it lasted months, where they broke up into little missional groups, and then they would go out uh, on on a particular day of the week and, you know, one group would go to the homeless ministry and, and join arms with them and help them minister to homeless people. Another group would go to, you know, uh, those who are ministering to pregnant teens. Another group would go to uh, a ministry to join arms with them uh, in the city that were helping drug addicts. And then they would come together um, on, on another meeting and then share their experiences and share what, what happened and how the Lord you know, showed up in these different places. So there's season of there's seasons of mission, there's seasons of outreach, there's seasons of inreach. But I guess the characteristics here, the key ones in all of these churches is there's a lot of humor because they're Americans and Americans like to tease each other. And when you're family, that's what you do. There is a lot of openness where everyone shares the Lord. Everyone's free to share the Lord. There is endless variety. No meeting looks the same. No gathering looks the same. And there's face-to-face community. They take care of one another. They're with one. You know, the churches live fairly close to each other. Um, You know, if you're, I would say in the average church that that I'm connected with, uh, that I relate to, you know, people are 5, 10, 15 minutes away. 20 minutes is a long haul. Uh, you know, so it's very intensely local, and to have community, you've got to be that close to, together. Sometimes they'll move, they'll relocate if there's a, a family that's an hour, an hour and a half away, and they fall in love with the brothers and sisters, they'll actually relocate and to be yeah. nearer to them. Um, so, you know, and, and I think a lot of your listeners, uh, of course, <clears throat> I shouldn't use the word a lot, but whoever's listening to this <laughs> may, um, I want to be honest here, um, uh, you know, may think, well, 12 churches, goodness me, that's nothing. And my answer to that is, Paul of Tarsus, his entire ministry, from the time he came to Jesus Christ to the time he curled up his toes and died, planted approximately 14 churches and no less. Yeah. And the reason is, is because that man did not go for quantity, he went for quality. And to raise up a group of believers, and, and, and hear me well, everyone listening to this, hear me well, to take a group of believers that just met the Lord and to show them how to know Jesus Christ in the depths, how to live by his indwelling life, 
how to take care of one another, and how to handle all the endless problems that are going to come to that community of believers, leave it on its own. Leave it on its own without a clergy, without a pastor, without a group of elders. Walk out of there and leave it totally to the headship of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, believing that if you built with gold, pearl, and precious stone, that group is going to survive without you and without a clergy. Leave it and come back six months or a year later, and you will see what you have built with. And if you've equipped the saints properly, let me tell you something, that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. It takes you have to know what you're doing because typically people who try to would who try to do that and they don't know how to give them Christ, that group's not going to last 2 months. There's going to be a church split, there's going to be disintegration. People are going to look at one another in a meeting not know what to do. They're going to or they're going to erect a clergy and go back to church as usual. So what I'm talking about here is something that requires a lot of experience and a lot of yeah. ministry that's centered on Christ, and it's not the typical thing that we see today. Amen. And, and I think that's, that's something that's trending right now, guys talking about Jesus being the senior pastor um, of, of the church, because there's been so much emphasis on a dude, a single man. And you mentioned about teams, and that's something that uh, you see in the first century, team church planning. Yeah. And... Um, and and you keep mentioning the word clergy. Now, for any of our listeners that have not read your books, um, you, you've obviously there's a, a, a belief in teams, and yet you, you speak about clergy in a negative. And, and and part of part of what I think would be helpful for our listeners is to define the terms and then to see the difference between say what your role would be, um, where you're at. And um, and and what how you would see clergy and to just kind of clarify because some of our guys out there are saying, well, hold on a second, you know, um, because you're emphasizing priesthood of all believers, which is thoroughly right. biblical, the interaction of of the first century church. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, the clergy is something that came into being around the second and third century. And what happened is there was a profound divide amongst God's people, where you had one group that was viewed as the non-professional, <sighs> poor, miserable laymen. <laughs> These were the people who were the consumers of religion, yeah. and they're the ones that attended the, the church service. They're the ones that put the money in the plate. Uh, they're the ones that supported the clergy. The clergy were the professionals. They were the purveyors of religious consumptions. And, um, you know, they were the ones who got paid for preaching and got paid for teaching. Um, and um, so you have this, this really, this caste system of clergy on the top, you know, they're the professionals, they're the performers, and then you had laity on the bottom, and they're the ones that were the consumers. And, you know, although that came much later after Jesus, and Jesus actually taught against this model because it was pervasive in Rome, it's pervasive in our business world, uh, it's pervasive in the military, it's pervasive in, in most organizations today, um, Jesus taught against it. You know, he, he said that the Romans have a hierarchy, essentially, and I'm, I'm translating his Greek words there, uh, where there's one on top and the other on the bottom, and he told his disciples, it shall not be so among you. Okay, so that's the clergy. Now, in the first century, you did not have a clergy. You had God's people, all of them were 
kleros, clergy, and all of them were laos laity, which means God's heritage. Both of those terms means they belong to God. And in that uh, community, you had different ministries. Now, one of the ministry was the apostolic ministry, and this is this is the church planting ministry. And the key outstanding characteristic of a church planter in the first century was, number one, they traveled. Amen. They didn't set up shop anywhere. Mm. You know, Paul would spend approximately four to six months in a new city. Uh, he usually got run out of town, and he had to leave. And he would leave for long periods of time, and then he would go back. In Corinth, he spent 18 months, and he left there. And then he spent three years in Ephesus because he was training young workers. Uh, and the story of Ephesus is, is, is awesome. Maybe we can get around to talking about it, what he did there. It was genius. But anyway, he was not paid a salary. Uh, as far as we know, he, well, he meant tents for a living. I mean, he was a blue-collar worker. Uh, and uh, occasionally, when he was not with a church, uh, some of the other churches would send him money. And as far as we know, the only two churches that sent him money was Thessalonica and Philippi. Um, the other churches really didn't help out too much. Of course, you got to understand, in the first century, most of those Christians were poor. Um, yeah. And But he did not get a paid check, a salary. You know, he was not a professional minister. He was a servant. He would go into a city. And, and the interesting thing, too, about Paul is when he was with God's people, when he was with a church, he would not take a penny from them. When he was on the road, if a church that he had planted had abundance of funds, like Philippi did, um, uh, that was mostly women in that church, by the way, and some of them were wealthy, they sent him a beautiful gift uh, that lasted a long time. But Paul was, uh, he was, he worked with his hands. Um, Peter was different. You know, Peter, um, he was an apostolic worker in the Church of Jerusalem, and over there, you know, there was a certain situation there wherein they, they supplied his needs. But again, it wasn't a salary where, you know, like clockwork, he's going to get his clergy check. It wasn't like that at all. And Peter eventually left all the churches he planted as well. Um, and I talk about this in Finding Organic Church. Uh, you can do your cha-ching there, little book plug. But if people are interested, <laughs> I say that because if people are interested to, to read the model of how churches were planted in the first century, the pattern is consistent. It doesn't move. Consequently, being someone who goes from town to town to plant churches does not take a penny when he's with the church. I'm talking about Paul's model now, Paul's standard, and will only receive monies if he's on the road and a church out of their own free will wants to support them. Um, but they, for the most part, work with their hands. You know, I was a teacher for many years, for example. I did that willingly. I did that because I wanted to follow Paul's way. Now I have an Internet business. Um, and so, you know, it, it's just a way that I think is a lot better uh, not that, you know, Peter's way isn't good, but still, Peter's way is not a clergy salary. It's very different. You know, he wasn't paid to be the minister there. You know, he was with 12 others, or 11 others, rather, apostolic workers, and eventually they all left Jerusalem and went all over the world. So so that would be the, the short answer to that. But again, um, I talk about that, and I also talk about in the book you already mentioned, Pagan Christianity. Where did the clergy salary come from? Wait, thank you. Where did the clergy come from? <laughs> Where did the whole system come from, you know? And um, so, yeah, I think really the bottom line here is, and, and this is the truth, many men today who are in ministry 
money is a big part of it. Absolutely. Uh, uh, respect and esteem is a big part of it. I mean, there's a lot of esteem that comes in, in the mainstream Christian world to people who are in ministry, who speak, who write books. And I would just say this, that the reason why Christianity is so shallow today, and I believe it is so shallow, it's so shallow you can barely drown a gnat in it, is because it's been uh, hijacked by American successful yeah. standards of you know, what is a successful person? And just there's so much ego that goes into it. And this is why the cross is so necessary. And this is why, and I'm talking about the principle of the cross, death to self. But this is why, too, um, that, you know, organic expressions of the church, the way I'm speaking about it, are not the big fad today. They're not popular. No. Yeah, a lot of people use the term, but what I'm talking about, it's not a house church. It's not a group of Christians meeting in a home. It's something far deeper, far more glorious, and far more difficult than any of that. And there's nothing in it for a person to gain outside of Jesus Christ. It, it's so funny you're saying this because, you know, in uh, Church Zero, cha-ching, notice how cheap our sound effects are on the show, by the way. They're, they're, you know, very, very cheap. I can give you, listen, I will send you, uh, I will send you an MP3 of a uh, a real live cha-ching, and you can go ahead and, uh, you can go ahead and throw it in there. Okay? Okay, I'll give that to you for free, all right? And and we're going to, every time we play that, we're going to go, Frank Viola, baby, Frank Viola, because that's how we do on the Church Planner Podcast. But, you know, it's funny. What you're saying is such a, a key of kind of what I'm arguing. Um, and, and, my, and it's the same thing where this is not going to be well-received. In fact, I, I write a, a chapter called Blowing Up the Death Star, and it's Chapter 7. Hmm. And it basically says, now, I've just demonstrated scripturally a lot of the things you've just said. And then I say, but you're not going to change it. The reason why is that you need a ride, and the church is the car you're riding in right now, and nobody likes walking. You know what I mean? You're going to have to get out and walk the rest of the way. And so one of the things that that fires me up is I I spent 12 years overseas. I've been a tent maker. I start off in a megachurch. I've been a tent maker, and it's perfect that we're talking to you today because this is slotting in, and the same with Michael Cheshire last week, um, it's slotting in to the middle of our section on church planning, kind of our how-to, right in the funding mission section. How do you fund your mission? And so Mike Cheshire comes along with Trojan Horse, which is like a tent maker idea, and you're coming in, and you've identified what I think is one of the crucial hindrances to the advancement of the kingdom, and that is the minister's paycheck. Because you pointed out that, that uh, first century apostolic ministry was mobile. Um, these guys were on the move. And in order for a guy today to plant and get on the move, money yeah. is a huge factor. And right. so I like the fact that you've, you, you've just identified it. That's why uh, you know having a business, having a, um, a tent-making – uh, it, it, for me, it was the only thing that gave me freedom. It, when money wasn't a factor, the mission, I was absolutely free to go wherever I had to go. And, and you're not only free to go where you feel the Lord leads you to go, but you're free to preach whatever you feel God's laid on your heart. When there's financial strings attached, 
let me tell you, you're not free. You're in bondage to say what pleases people because your paycheck is attached to that. And when, when you don't have that control, uh, when that's cut off, man, you can say anything you want that the Lord has put on your heart without fear of repercussion. You know, and, and again, this is a big thing, too, because so many ministers today, they're in bondage. You know, they can't say and do things that they really feel uh, is in line with the Lord's highest because they're afraid that, you know, the checkbook, checkbooks are going to close. And they do. Absolutely. Uh, you know, so I think it was Sinclair who said that it's very difficult to get a man to understand something when his paycheck uh, you know, it, it makes it makes it hard for him to understand it, or difficult for him to understand <laughs> it. Yeah, and and it's true. You know, and money, and then esteem too, because in in our world, there is a whole celebrity culture built around ministry and ministers, and you know, a lot of uh, the online magazines fuel it. A lot of the in print magazines fuel it. Television fuels it. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, well, let's see, what do I want to be when I grow up? Uh, I can be an astronaut. I can be a pilot. I can be a professional athlete, or I can be a minister because it's right. It, this, there is a celebrity stature that's right there with it. And here you look at Paul Tarsus and he's saying, you want to be an apostolic worker? You want to be a church planter? Well, guess what? It's a death sentence. The Amen. real thing is a death sentence, and not only that, but you are the scum of the earth. Yeah. That's what that apostles come in last. I'm gonna tell you something. One of the key marks of a true apostolic worker is this: they're gonna have so many knives in their back, they're gonna have yeah. so much wounds on their back that if they pull up their shirt, it's gonna look like ground beef. And I think that's exactly what Paul Tarsus' back looked like. And that's a metaphor to describe the remarkable persecution and opposition um, and, and even the, the, the anonymity. Uh, you know, those who are truly in the work, for the most part, okay, I'm talking about the whole world now, for the most part, those who are truly raising up the Bride of Christ in various locales and doing it the way that fulfills God's eternal purpose, which is something very high. If I mentioned their names, you wouldn't even know who they were. There's only, ex yeah. there's only rare exceptions, and the people who are known, they don't want to be. They yeah. don't even want the job, you know. A true yeah. apostolic worker, a true church planter doesn't want the job. Amen. Amen. Frank, you are, <laughs> you are a man after my – I feel like you're my brother from another mother. All right. All right. And you're, you're so good bald. to me, man. I'm down you're with bald. it. Yeah, you know, I'm bald. Bald is beautiful, baby. So, you know, this is cool because, like, just hearing your passion come through, reading your books, and uh, hearing your passion, I, I, I dig it, man, because this is something you're living. This is, you have lost a lot as well, not just Barna. But you've made these sacrifices, and that passion and that conviction comes through because your money's where your mouth is. And looking at your books, you know, um, there, there's a bunch of them. If you were to – a couple couple questions I want to ask. Yeah. Number one, and I'm going to ask all three at the same time, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a cheat sheet in a minute. But number one, um, someone who's brand new to the works of Frank Viola, what one did they start with? That's the first question. The second question is, what was your favorite book to write? 
And the third question is, and I like I said, I'll give you a cheat sheet. You don't have to remember all this. Um, I get distracted by bright, shiny objects very easily. So uh, <laughs> the, the third one is, what do you think is the most important book for the church at large to read? So, so the first question was, brand new to Frank Viola, what's the book that I need to start with? Um, it, it would be it would be a toss up between from eternity to here and God's favorite place on earth. Those would be the ones that I would give to someone who is brand new to to my work. From eternity to here is an un- unveiling of God's eternal purpose, um, the grand mission. What really is it? And I think that for most Christians, if you ask them, what is God really after? They'll either say something, you know, out of the Westminster Confession, which mm-hmm. doesn't really mean a whole lot. Well, it's to give God glory and enjoy Him forever. Okay, wow, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> um, that doesn't do anything inside of me. It, theologically, right. it may be true, but, um, man, it, it, if you open up the eternal purpose of God, it is something that will ignite uh, an individual and, and put them into euphoria. It is so glorious and so high. So, you know, giving God glory and enjoying Him forever is doesn't really, you know, move uh, me, at least, in that way. Or they're going to say, well, He wants people to be saved, and He wants disciples. We, you know, we need to make disciples. Well, again, um, that really misses it. Let me, let me give, give you a little hint. When God created Adam, um, there was no fall. So there was no need for somebody to be saved. Right. So that wasn't God's purpose in creating Adam, because right. he didn't need to be saved. And neither did he need to be a disciple. You see, he wasn't, he wasn't fallen, uh, yeah. whatever that means, disciple. You know, that's another clay word. Um, so, so what I say in From Eternity Here is there is something so high, so glorious. It is his eternal purpose. Uh, it is the grand theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It, it, it moves like a golden thread. And it is not salvation. It is not making the world a better place. It is not discipleship. Those things are great. And it's not, well, to enjoy God forever and give Him glory. It is something so wonderful, so earth, earth-shattering, so mind-blowing that, you know, it, it, it will just leave us awash and the face of Jesus Christ if we see it. And it will change everything in our ministry. So that, that's one. The, the second one, I guess, this is, a, this is a coin toss, would be God's favorite place on earth. And, um, you know, I'm not now really going to say me, anything uh, about it. Just, I'll just mention me, that. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you're stopping there, because I want to just say about uh, from eternity to here, um, and I dig on that, that it's a reversal from here to eternity because uh, I'm a big fan of, of the man. So um, from eternity to here, I read a review on that, and I know the answer. I, I, I actually am aware of what that, and I'm not going to give it away. You've got to read the book. But, but the reality is I read a review, and what impressed me was we all know the eggheads tend to be in the reform camp, right? Mm. And so, you know, the, there was a, a professor who had made the comment, look, I don't come across things that when you live a certain number of years and you've done enough reading, you don't hear things that are new a lot. And, and we've all been there. We've all read the, you know, the standard works and on and on. And Frank, I know you're, you're, I can tell you're, you're self-taught. You've probably uh, been widely read 
Um, you know, but you've, you know, you keep going back to the scripture saying, but is this biblical? And so um, what really was amazing to me was he said, but this book, you know, because redemptive history is, is quite a big uh, passion with people now. That's coming back to the fore. But he said, but, but this book put a, such a new perspective on it, but it was thoroughly biblical, but the word he used was glorious. And you cannot, that is like one of the, the, the highest combat. He was moved. That's what you're saying right there. Excuse me. So, uh, so wow. yeah, hey, bless you. And, um, you know, and, and so the, God's favorite place on earth, um, since you're not going to say anything more about it, I won't yeah. say anything more about it. Okay, but, yeah. Uh, that, uh, and, 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 okay, so second question is what was your favorite book to write? And I think I know the answer to this one. Well, really? Because <laughs> I'm not sure I do. <laughs> Man, that's hard Okay, for my me. guess, my guess, yeah. my guess, my guess personally yeah. is God's favorite place on earth. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. Um, as I think about it, you know, that's pretty intuitive of you to say that. Um, many of the books I've written, I can't even remember writing them. It's like a blur. I don't remember writing Pagan Christianity. I don't remember writing From Eternity Here. I mean, I know I did it, but I can't actually remember writing it. And, and two books I wrote with Len Sweet, Jesus Manifesto and Jesus of Theography, both of those books – we we co-wrote together, and we did it within uh, a six-week time frame, approximately, both those books. So that was a blur, too. All I remember about writing those is we were pushing hard to hit the deadline, and it was January 1st, and we had to work through Christmas. Um, so I remember that. <laughs> I remember that. Um, but um, I think it was um, God's favorite place on earth because it was a new way of writing for me. Um, you know, the book contains both fictional elements and non-fictional elements. And um, the fictional part was a struggle, but it was fun. It was a challenge, yeah. but it was fun. And I I um, give a lot of credit to the people who, who the fiction writers, there are a couple of fiction writers who, you know, looked at my manuscript, gave me uh, very valuable feedback, um, and really helped me to, to finish those chapters in a way that I felt good about them. So, yeah, I, I think that would probably be the case. Um, I just finished turning in the manuscript of my, um, my next book that comes out next year. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to mention what it is, but um, it was the most difficult book for me to write in the sense that I was unmotivated to write it. Um, and sometimes that happens with me, you know, I'll, I'll yep. get in, I'll get a burst of inspiration and I'll really be, jazzed about writing a book and other times you know i'll have the they idea don't give you a big enough advance and so, you know. <laughs> i just i'm just you know it's very hard i missed the deadline i had extended several months i finally got it you know f finished it and and i hope the lord anointed me to do it but you know we'll just have to see how how readers take it but it was very hard for me to write because the motivation just was not there um, it's it's interesting you're saying that because I'm in there now. You know, Church Zero came out as like this prophetic burden, whereas the book I'm writing now, um, it was mostly written at the same time, but I've got to go back now and kind of produce it as a standalone. It's the same thing where it, it needs to be written. It's the book that needs to be written. It's not exactly the prophetic burden. And, mm. and I think there's a, 
you know, I, I have had to assess it and say, but I still need to write this. Like, this is going to be a very helpful book. Yeah. But, uh, there's other ones where it's just, it's bursting out of your chest, you know. Right, right. Exactly. Like, like an alien symbiote. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. What is so what third question, yeah, um, and the third question is what is the most important uh, book for the church to read? Well, it really depends on um, where a particular individual in the church um, is at, you know. Uh, I, yeah. I So, so I, I think I'll probably better well, answer it. When it comes to, can I do by category, like what the need is, and then what book? Absolutely. Because, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Just we need a whole new way of reading the New Testament. Okay. The way we read the New Testament is <clears throat> like with scissors and glue. We go by verses, we cut and paste, and we build mm-hmm. doctrines. Okay. If I were to ask the average pastor today or Bible teacher tell the story of the first century church in chronological order, giving me dates, places, and times from the book of Acts all the way to Revelation. Do it in 30 minutes. Um, I think most of them would probably fail because there is not a context or an understanding or a grid to see the whole sweeping epic drama from beginning to end chronologically. Our New Testament is not put in chronological order, for example. You know, and so when you when you take that approach, it's sort of like, you know, I have a an older vehicle, it's a 2005, and I have a CD player, and if you ever uh, listen to books on CD, um, you can you can sit the you can put those CDs in, and there's a switch on my uh, on my particular um, vehicle on the CD player that's called random. Uh, others, I think it's called shuffle. And what it'll do is it will take all the chapters and put them in uh, a haphazard order. So you start with chapter four, then I'll move to chapter one, then you're on to chapter 10, then you're in chapter five, and it's all out of sequence. Well, that's how we read the New Testament. And so, you know, to really understand what, say, the epistles of Paul, what he's saying, how he's feeling, who he's writing to, where he just came from, where he is, what's going on in his life at the time, those things are essential to understand what he's saying in all of his letters. And so consequently, uh, I would say that, you know, the, the, un, the untold story of the New Testament church does the very thing that I'm suggesting. It puts it all in chronological order, and I think there's a big need for that. Um, 1,700 pastors leave the pastorate every single year. And, um, you know, of course, some of them leave for reasons uh, that are undesired by them, but there are many that leave out of conscience, a crisis of conscience. And, uh, and many of the Lord's people are sitting in a pew Sunday morning saying, there's got to be more than this. This isn't it. I, don't, I feel like leaving, but I'm supposed to be here because I'm supposed to go to church. Right. <laughs> and they're bored to yeah. death. Um, pagan Christianity would be the book for them. Um, and then, you know, we talked about from eternity to here already, so I would say that would be one of the most important. And God's favorite place on earth, you know, what is it that the Lord is looking for today beyond everything else? What is he wanting? Where does his heart beat? And it's one word. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's the name of a village, but there is so much wrapped up in that village that it answers the question of what Jesus Christ is looking for today. And that village is Bethany. 
And that's going to be new to a lot of Christians. In fact, the feedback I've gotten on God's favorite place on earth was one guy said, I'm a, I have a Ph.D. in theology. I've been to two seminaries. I've never seen this in the Bible, yet it's, it's all over the place in the Gospels. I've never seen it, never thought about it. And that's not a credit to me. I picked this up from other writers myself, uh, most of whom are no longer living. But in this book, God's Favorite Place on Earth, I put it all together, and I think it gives a stunning vision of what the Lord is after. That's killer, man. You know, I've got an old book. It's uh, The House at Bethany, and I picked it up in the U.K. And, wow. Uh, when, yeah, man, when I saw your book come out, I was like, hey. Who's the know, author of that? Let's see. I'm over near my uh, – let's see huh. if I can find it for you while I'm on there. I tell you what, when we're done with this, I will dig it out. It's Yeah, yeah, I'm really curious. I'm really curious um, because I, I'm not – I don't think I'm familiar with that uh, that title at all. So I'd love to love to hear about it, it's but an uh, old you know they're title, yeah, yeah, definitely. But but you know this is a lost message. Um, you know every every place in the Gospels where Jesus went to this little village of Bethany, um, I tell the story. Of course, it's from Lazarus' perspective, but then I you know apply it to our life. But the the story is so powerful, and the meaning of that town is so powerful, and has everything to do with what God's looking for today. So that's awesome. Well, you know, you've got a series of books, um, the Rechurch series. Do you uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Tell tell us what that's about, and what what books are in that series. Rechurch is <clears throat> a presentation of what the church after God's own heart looks like from the New Testament in comparison to the church we have on the earth today uh, in most settings. Um, It's a series of six books. Pagan Christianity is one of them. That's the deconstructive volume. Uh, Untold Story of New Testament Church, we talked about that. Um, That gives uh, the history of the first century church in chronological order from the New Testament. Reimagining Church is a constructive companion volume to pagan Christianity. Pagan Christianity tears down, reimagining church builds up. And, you know, it, it, don't be fooled by the title. It's not my imagination. It's what I've experienced since 1988 in, in various uh, towns where the church was in its organic expression functioning. Um, and then there's one called Finding Organic Church, which, which is a look at the apostolic ministry from the first century. Um, and you know, the problems and diseases that organic churches tend to get and how to overcome them, uh, the cures for them, um, and how to begin uh, a first-century-styled organic church from scratch. Um, and uh, and then there's From Eternity to Here, which is the big picture, God's eternal purpose. And, uh, and then Jesus' Manifesto, which is really the root, um, the center and circumference of what the church is all about. And this is a presentation of Jesus Christ, mostly out of Colossians 1. So all those books together, they all work together, they all build on the other, and it's called the ReChurch um, series. And, and readers can go to reimaginingchurch.org, reimaginingchurch.org, that's correct, and they can see the whole series and what each book is about. Awesome. That's totally helpful, man. And that that is like a, a complete education on everything that you've been talking about. And I, I hope that the guys that, that are listening, that are looking at church planning, will explore these things. Because first century church planning 
is definitely the slant that we come. I mean, we interview uh, different people from different backgrounds, and we, you know, we're always gleaning something from somebody. But that is definitely our slant, and it is mm. such a freeing thing to come back to that. So mm. we appreciate it. We want to talk a little bit um, before we go, because you've been quite active in the recent, I would say, controversy. It's been very controversial. Um, and, of course, it does go back to first century church, talking about the Holy Spirit who's yeah. uh, pretty much uh, being sidelined, argued out. I mean, the Holy Spirit seems to play a very central part in the first century yeah. church, right. <laughs> strangely. But, uh, but, but recently, we've been writing about the uh, Strange Fire Conference. You know, um, I'll modify that just a tiny bit. Uh, I have not heard nor seen any of the conference, but I read the book. And so I'm really responding to that. Back in 1992, uh, John MacArthur came out with a book entitled Charismatic Chaos. And what happened was that there was a gentleman who I was in fellowship with who read MacArthur's book, finished it, closed the cover, and said, I don't want to have fellowship with you, Frank Viola, anymore, nor any of your friends, because you guys believe and exercise spiritual gifts, and I have have had my eyes opened by reading Charismatic Chaos, and all of that has passed away. Therefore, I cannot fellowship with you anymore. And I felt um, so troubled and so burdened uh, by this that um, I was provoked to read the book. I still own a copy of it with my notes. And I wrote him a very long letter, um, and it was a critique of the book. And I gave him the letter, and I don't know how long it was. This is a long time ago. This would have been uh, 92, sometime in 92. He read it and my letter, and he came back and said, you know what, you have persuaded me that I was wrong and that this book was wrong. And so fellowship was restored. I then um, made it available I turned it into like a critique um, to a couple people who wanted to see it in 94. And so I let them see it and it's just been sitting in my computer all those years. And now strange fire comes out. And I suspected that strange fire, the book was just a rewrite of um, charismatic chaos. And I was correct. It is. Um, <laughs> it's just updated. You know, the examples are updated. You've got the new charismatic nice, shiny new cover. Oh, excellent cover. I love the cover. Thomas Nelson did a good job at the cover. Um, much better than Charismatic Chaos. But, you know, it's just sort of a warmed-over version. But the vitriolic rhetoric is ratcheted up in this new version. I mean, Strange Fire and MacArthur make some sweeping denunciations that are just, you know, inflammatory. And um, so I, you know... Shook off the dust, so to speak, of the 1994 critique on charismatic chaos, and I revised it to include the arguments that were new in Strange Fire, and then I put it out as a PDF, 75 pages. It's a critique of both books, um, and you know, I'm I have no beef with MacArthur as a person. You know, I don't know the man, I don't know his heart, and so there's nothing personal in it. It's just taking his arguments and responding to them. And I've made it free for the next two weeks. Um, I think we're close to the first week. So November 18th will be the last day that it will be free. 
Um, people can just download it. And all they got to do is just go to my blog, frankviola.org, O-R-G, and um, just scroll down and they'll see, you know, Critique of Strange Fire and they can get it. So, Very cool, man. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just nice to see uh, somebody, you know, who's um, intelligent, really, is kind of what I'm trying to say there, um, responding. Because... The, uh, the I have you fooled then, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, you know, it, it's funny because I have people thinking I'm stupid, but I'm really a brainiac. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, as a closet intellectual, but the reality is it, it's just so nice because the caricature that's painted is that all these charismatic idiots, none of them are uh, eggheads, none of them think. None of them know how to read a book, and they definitely don't know how to exegete scripture. And um, and you know you you've got you know Piper, you've got um, uh, Grudem, you've got guys on the other side of the fence who you know eat eat guys that come like Arthur for breakfast, really. And like you said, and I don't mean that in a, in, a, in a way to to cast aspersion on them, but I mean these are intellectual guys who definitely operate in 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 the spirit and. At least theologically, that's my training, by the way. It goes by my house. At least theologically, now they can hold their own. And so we need that. So thanks for writing that, Frank. Appreciate that. <clears throat> well, I hope it. I hope it's helpful. You know, I give a challenge at the very end of it. Um, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a challenge and it's a request. Um, I, I'm really curious to know if any soul out there who reads it, if it moves the needle at all in their thinking, you know, if there's anything in the critique, because I cover a lot of things. I mean, I, I even talk about the apostolic ministry, you know, is it, is it still operative today? I talk about the gifts of the spirit, you know, is cessationism, is it valid both biblically and experientially and historically? I've got a whole section on um, the many, many testimonies from the post-apostolic church writers that testify of miracles in their day and word of knowledge and prophetic words and all that, you know, and I'm curious if it moves the dial at all. I mean, to me, if it it changes the mind of one person, especially with respect to how they view uh, an individual who believes in and or practices spiritual gifts, then to my mind, it's well worth putting the effort in to put it out there. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, I always, you know, I always kind of uh, smell a rat when I see people getting so excited by the fact that the spirit doesn't operate that way today. I always think, huh, that's a strange reaction to be having to that. I mean, yeah. there should be a kind of, oh, you know. And, yeah, right, right. But, but the amount of um, really just joy that seems to be coming from that camp, it almost to me seems like a, a justification of, cool, this is the reason we just stay as we are. And you know, almost a justification for perhaps um, what Lloyd-Jones called, uh, you know, dead orthodoxy. And yeah, he right. also talked about a smug contentment that mm. can seep into churches who uh, just hey, we're fine. Almost like in Revelation, we're we're rich. We have need of nothing. We got all we need, yeah. Jesus. You know, you stay over there, and and so you know, those are fighting words, I suppose, from from my camp. But I haven't really entered the fray on the argument. But that's just you know, as we're on the topic, that's that's my impression. Like I I would just imagine like 
if you're going to have a conference, have a conference that's just kind of like, hey, this sucks. If this is true, this really sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that that's the reality, you know, and it's almost like the issue of hell. I mean, if you're um, – if you're somebody who believes that hell is a literal torment, uh, you know, endlessly for eternity, there should be something in you that says, man, I believe it because that's what the scriptures lead me to believe, but I wish it wasn't true. <laughs> right. I, I wish it was a bit easier. You know what I mean? Um, it's the guy that says, yes, it's eternal torment and I'm happy right. about it. That makes right. you wonder, Absolutely. you know, what's going on in his heart. I, yeah. I've said this before on the podcast that I, you know, I really wish the annihilists were right. You know, that, okay, you yeah. die, maybe you go to hell for a little bit and then it's done. Right. Like that would be much better than an actual eternity of hell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Francis Chan in uh, the book Erasing Hell starts off in the chapter going, if you derive enjoyment from this discussion, you have issues. Mm. <laughs> I love that. It's so true. You know, you, you actually have issues that, that need to be worked out. Yeah. But, Frank, man, I just want to say it has been an honor and uh, strongly encourage uh, our listener, Joey, to uh, – <laughs> What's up, Joe? <laughs> Forget about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, and, you know, we picked up another guy named Hector, and uh, you might want to say hi to Hector, too. What's well, up, Hector? Brandon. Forget about it. <laughs> Can't forget Brandon. Brandon drives down from Sherman Oaks to our church plant in Long Beach. It's got to be, like, I don't know, an hour and a half just because he wants to see what we're doing. Nice. But, uh, Frank, you know, it's cool, man, because you're you're provocative in what you write. But you're a cool dude in real life. And, and so it's been a pleasure having you on here, man. Thanks for coming on. I enjoy it. I enjoy you guys. And I'll send you that cha-ching uh, MP3 so that you could uh, you could make use of it. Yeah, and, and if you get a chance, go to Frank's uh, podcast. It is hot stuff. Um, and he just has a cracking sense of humor. Uh, all throughout, he's you know he's got clips in there, um, commercials, uh, spoofs, you, uh, sound effects like you wouldn't believe, and he's got some pretty hard rocking tunes on there as well. So check out his uh, podcast. And uh, Frank, thanks for being on. This has been Peyton Jones and Pete Mitchell reminding you that if you want to reach the ones that no one's reaching, you got to go where nobody's going and do what nobody's doing. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. dot com.